Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 21, Ezra chapter 10, the conclusion and the end of the book of Ezra. Well, this lesson is going to end the book of Ezra. Has it not been an eye-opening of just how much what Ezra experienced and his goal of reforming the seriously degraded Hebrew religion in his day is so similar to the state of 21st century Judeo-Christianity. It's startling. The, The crux of the disease that affected and debilitated the Jewish religion of 450 BC is the same as what harms our Christian and Jewish faiths today. Adultery. And on the surface that may sound like a shocking and maybe an unwarranted statement. But the issue of illicit marriages in the book of Ezra teaches us that any unfaithfulness in our relationship with the Lord, especially bringing in outside influences to add to our religion, to mix the pagan with the holy, this is adultery. God created the institution of marriage between a man and a woman as a physical, earthly type or pattern of the spiritual relationship the Lord wants with His worshipers. Thus, marriage metaphors are used at times in the Bible when describing the ideal relationship between God and human beings. God is depicted as the husband. The body of believers is His bride. Thus, for believers to seek after or accept or even tolerate another God in our lives is to be as the betrothed who has become unfaithful to her bridegroom. For a believer to come into marriage and or sexual union with someone who worships other gods or in our era no God at all is compared to one who is seeking after a different husband or lover. It is a violation of the seventh commandment that prohibits adultery. Thus the central storyline of Ezra chapters 9 and 10 explains the problem that many Jewish men had married foreign pagan women who by definition worshipped another god. This is defined as unfaithfulness to Yahweh. By the men of Israel joining themselves to these foreign women, they were being unfaithful to the God of Israel, which according to God is called adultery. Let's reread a few verses of chapter 10 in Ezra to get started today. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're going to be getting on page uh, 1130. 1130. We're going to read verses 9 through 17 of Ezra chapter 10. 
all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled in Jerusalem within the three days. It was the twentieth day of the ninth month. All the people sat in the open place in front of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Ezra the Cohen, Ezra the priest, stood up and addressed them. You have acted treacherously by marrying foreign, uh, foreign women and have thus increased Israel's guilt. Now therefore make confession to Adonai, the God of your ancestors, and do what will please him by separating yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign women. In response, the whole assembly cried out, Yes, our duty is to do as you have said. But, here, but there are many people. It's the rainy season. We can't stay out here in the open. Also, it isn't the work of a day or two, for there are many of us who have committed this crime. Let our leaders represent the whole community. Let all those in our cities who have married foreign women appear at prearranged times, accompanied by the elders and judges of each city, until our God's fierce anger over this has been turned away from us. Only Yonatan, the son of Azahel, and Yahzeh, the son of Tikva, uh, supported by Meshulam and Shabtai the Levite, opposed this. The exiles did as agreed. Ezra the priest took, uh, chose heads of father's clans by name, and they began their sessions to look into the matter on the first day of the tenth month. They finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women by the first day of the first month. So here, on a cold, rainy day in winter, the 20th day of the ninth month of the year, the Jewish people living in Judah, who had been summoned to the temple, arrived. And they waited to hear their fate from Ezra. Several days earlier, a lay leader named Shekinah had courageously stood in front of a large crowd that had gathered because of Ezra's loud wailing and his very public mourning in a temple courtyard and told them a truth they didn't want to hear. It was that many of the Jews had behaved in a treacherous way towards God in their unlawful marrying of foreign women, of pagans. And he told the crowd that he felt that the only thing they could do now was as a group make a commitment to send these foreign wives away, they and the children they might have bore. The people voiced approval of this and then Ezra stood up and made them swear a vow to God that they would act on their agreement. And since the crowd at the temple consisted only of passers-by, not the bulk of the returned Jewish exiles, a message was sent under Ezra's, Ezra's authority demanding that all the returned exiles, guilty of this offense or not, were to show up at the temple in a few days. And the penalty for not coming would be forfeiture of all property to the temple authorities and then excommunication from the Jewish community. For a Jew, this is about the nearest thing to a death sentence there was without losing one's life. And now as we pick up today, the people have arrived as ordered and they're ready to carry out what they vowed. Well, Ezra reminds them of their treachery and that the guilty should confess their sin to the Lord and then do what pleases God, which is to first separate themselves from the people's people's plural, of the land, 
That means foreigners living in Judah. And also from their foreign wives. So, as it is usually described, Ezra orders mass divorce in God's name for all the guilty parties. Now, as you can imagine, this has deeply bothered Christian commentators for centuries. Let's investigate a couple of aspects of this unsettling situation. First, as we discussed in an earlier lesson, the words used to describe both the union and now the disillusion of those unions with foreign women are not the typical Hebrew words for marriage and divorce. Instead, the word used for the union is yeshav, which means to cause to dwell, and the word used for the dissolution is yetzah, which means to send away. Therefore, I have much doubt that the Lord saw these relationships as actual marriage, even though the couple certainly felt they were married, because a legitimate Hebrew marriage requires a covenant vow by both parties that invokes the name of the God of Israel. Thus, if in God's eyes there's never been a true marriage, the destruction of that union is not true divorce. Second of all, most Christian commentators don't seem to recognize this important nuance. So, they see this story as an unfortunate but all too common situation of Hebrew marriage and divorce. Even though this divorce is one that's been forced upon the Jews by Ezra, as God's representative. This, thus it's typically rationalized in one of two ways. Either that this was simply a matter of biblically endorsed racism that, although tolerated in ancient times, was nonetheless wrong. Or that this is an issue of Ezra ordering that the Jews should take the path of the lesser of two evils. That is, in this case, divorce was seen as the least worst option when compared with continuing on in the status quo by the Jewish men remaining in union with their Hebrew wives. But either way, it was evil. And while the first accusation of this being a problem of Jews marrying outside of their race is flatly incorrect. The second accusation does have a certain appeal to it. That is, with only two possible options before them, the Jews took the one they thought would please God the most, or in the negative, would upset God the least. And I disagree with this. This is not an issue of accepting the lesser of two evils. Because it wasn't evil to send the pagan women and their children away any more than it was evil when Abraham sent Hagar away with her child. However, it was the sad result of sinning and of bad judgment and of not believing God in the first place that these women were put in a bad way, that many innocent children unfairly became homeless and fatherless by being ripped away from their households in Judah is terrible. That most of these Jewish husbands and fathers loved their wives and children 
Some had been happily together for many years. And no doubt they were devastated to send them away forever. This is heartbreaking. However, it was the illegitimate union that was the sin. Not the dissolving of the union. Because the dissolving of the union essentially terminated the sinful act. What a mighty lesson this is for all ages and eras. The effects of our sin can have a long reach, a lasting effect that most often is accompanied by unintended consequences. And more often than not, our conscious choice to disobey God and to trespass against Him harms others as much or more as it does ourselves. Collateral damage is the norm, even if sometimes we're just too self-absorbed in our own misery to notice it. Sometimes, even sincerely righting the wrong can be excruciating, as it is here in the case with Ezra. And another of the lessons we hopefully learn here is that the longer we wait to change our ways by returning to God's ways, to start undoing the mistakes we've made, well, at least the ones that can be undone, the harder it is, the more devastating the after effects. But there is yet another lesson in God principle. Does it play here? The principle of dividing, electing, and separating. Now, although many here have studied the book of Genesis with me, I would like to briefly review this principle that is so fundamental to everything God does and the way He behaves that I call it a governing dynamic. Like gravity... And the laws of thermodynamics are the governing dynamics that describes the behavior of our physical universe. So here in a nutshell is God's prime governing dynamic. The Lord achieves His will by dividing, electing, and separating. In the beginning, He divided light from darkness... He elected light as good and he separated them. He divided male from female. He elected each to a well-defined role and function and separated them. He divided and separated the land from the seas, animal life from human life. He divided the world's inhabitants into groups, elected each of them for a purpose and separated them into nations with boundaries. He divided the twin brothers Jacob and Esau elected one as the carrier of the line of covenant promise, the other who would oppose it. And then he separated them. He took the entire world's population of humans and divided us into two categories, Gentiles and Hebrews. He elected the Hebrews to be a set-apart people, separated to serve him. And since the coming of Messiah Yeshua, He's divided the world into those who trust Christ for salvation versus all others who do not. He's elected the believers for eternal life and then spiritually separated us from them 
and has also demanded a certain degree of physical separation. I mean, I could go on for several more minutes giving you examples of God dividing, electing, and separating. Now naturally, our human evil inclination prodded along by Satan wants to reunify everything. Dissolve every distinction and division that God ordained. We want to put an end to all this dividing and electing and separating because as the world sees it, this is the overriding cause of our endless conflicts and strife. Even the church has for years cried, Unity! Usually at any cost. Declared it a godly goal. Urged consensus, tolerance, compromise, whatever it takes to achieve it. We live in a world that now sees the concept of nationalism and therefore national boundaries as archaic, faulty, something that needs to be eradicated. The roles and defined behavior of the sexes should no longer have distinction. There is a drive by the political elites and the academic intellectuals to unify all people on earth under one currency, one economy, and one government. The so-called interfaith movement wants us to meld all the world's religions into one so that we might have equality and peace. Unity sounds so good. So right. What a noble endeavor. At least from a human philosophical viewpoint. But in fact, it is the opposite of God's will. And it inherently defies His prime governing dynamic. He divides, elects, and separates. And thus, in the Ezra story of the mixed marriages, we have a demonstration of God's will to divide and separate over and against mankind's will to unify. Verse 11 says in in Ezra 10, Now therefore make confession to Adonai, the God of your ancestors, and do what will please Him by separating yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign women. Separate yourselves. In other words, God had originally done the work of separating the foreigners, who aren't His people, from Israel, who are His people. He had given the foreigners their own separate land, separate governments. They had created their own separate gods from Israel's God. Long ago, the Creator had made distinctions between Israel and all others. But the Jews in our story thought it good in their own eyes to take down those barriers. To end the division and separation. Just like the Tower of Babel. When Nimrod sought to unify the nations under one language and one king himself. In our time, many Jews no longer want to be the chosen, separated people of God. They want to undo the Hebrew-Gentile division that Jehovah created and become part of one universal people. Why? 
because they've decided that the distinction of being elected and separated is not an honor, but rather it just has become too large and difficult of a burden to bear. This philosophy is well represented in Israel's government and has created countless problems for them because they don't appreciate the unique status that God has given to them. In the 21st century, especially in the West, distinctions among people, clearly defined roles of sex and marriage, national boundaries, differences in religions, even the existence of evil versus good are today counted as bigotry, discrimination, intolerance, and some recognitions of distinctions in God-defined morality are disparagingly called phobias. Thus in Christianity, many mainstream denominations declare that the God of the Old Testament who has made those distinctions has been superseded by the God of the New Testament, Yeshua, who has led us to erase those distinctions because they've proven to have been a mistake or they were only for a certain people, Israel, and only for a certain time, pre-Christ. And with that, said, I can't let it stand without following it up with this. I rebuke that line of thought. And I plead with those denominations who have deserted God's laws and commandments to renounce their false doctrines. And I urge those believers who are members of those congregations to do as God and Ezra commanded. Separate yourselves. Do it now before the consequences and the collateral damage becomes unavoidable. Revelation 18.4 Then I heard another voice out of heaven say, My people, come out of her. So that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not be infected by her plagues. In the book of Ezra, we discover that many Jews, not only in Judah, but also in the Persian diaspora, decided on their own to take down the barriers, to remove the boundaries, to dissolve the distinctions that the Lord had created and nothing could be more emblematic of that rebellious mindset than to take pagan women as marriage partners. But now being confronted by their great sin, God says, and I paraphrase, you yourselves divide and separate back to where originally I had you. I divided, elected, and separated the pagans from the worshippers of Jehovah, and you undid it. It's up to you to put it back the way it was. As I said to begin today's lesson, as with the, the, the Jews of the mixed marriages, the church and Judaism are also deep into adultery, spiritual adultery. Perhaps not in the sense of husbands and wives cheating on one another. But certainly turning our hearts away from the Lord, 
our faith institutions preferring our own doctrines, our own traditions to God's laws and commandments, intertwining secular and foreign and man-made observances with Jehovah's holy word, chasing after the gods of this world and all they entice us with. See, it's become common today for believers to marry non-believers as though it doesn't matter as long as we're in love. It matters. We have adopted pagan observances and practices and then incorporated them into our Christian traditions and customs because it's inclusive and it's fun. While at the same time, refusing to acknowledge God's laws in appointed times because we find them irrelevant or just too old-fashioned. If my reading of the times is correct, the rapture is not far off. And it's going to be the greatest, most complete, and definitive process of division, election, and separation there has ever been in human history. Think about it. Those whom the Lord deems worthy will enter a permanent new state of being that is incorruptible, glorious, and righteous. All others will perish in their wickedness. It will be as stark as it was with the great flood. And yet, while it is the Lord alone who is going to determine that final division, it is us just like it is with the Jews in Ezra who are called to separate ourselves from all that is ungodly or that pretends to be godly. And so has it no place in the lives of worshipers of the God of Israel and His Son Yeshua. This governing dynamic of dividing, electing, and separating that began in Genesis is only completed at the end of Revelation. Then and only then will there be true unity. Well, in Ezra 10.12, all the Jews who came to the assembly responded to Ezra's demand to do what pleases God by sending away the foreign wives, by separating themselves from the foreign people in the land of Judah, by saying, yes, our duty is to do as you have said. But in verse 13, some practical realities have to be faced. First, there were many people present. They were all wet and cold and needed shelter. But second, to sort out just who had committed all this sin and, and to devise a plan to deal with all the nuances and details involved would take time, a lot more in a couple of days. Besides, who would make these determinations? What if a Jew had married a foreign woman, but now she declares for the God of Israel and denounces her pagan gods in order to stay? Who determines if she's sincere? What if a foreign woman had brought a dowry of great wealth into the marriage? Or if this foreign woman was the daughter of a foreign man who had acquired land in Judah and now she and her husband were living on that land figuring it is theirs? 
Who keeps it? What about the children produced from these marriages? At what age is the cutoff point that the child must stay with his or her mother and suffer her fate? What if the child produced from this illicit marriage has become an adult, considers him or herself a Jew, and has married a Jew? In fact, this matter of Jews marrying foreigners has gone on for so long now. What's the status of the grandchildren of these illicit marriages? Bottom line, every case was unique. Every case was going to have to be judged individually. What would be the guidelines? Would there be a court of appeals? No particular person is said to have uttered the suggestion to proceed carefully and thoughtfully, but rather it was kind of a general consensus of the crowd. The solution was that the leaders, no doubt elders, would represent the community, they would set the guidelines. And then appointments would be made for those families who the leaders believed were involved, and they were to appear before a council of elders and judges. The nearest city to where a family lived would be where their case would be heard and decided. And this would continue till all the cases had been examined and resolved. However, not everyone was enthusiastic about this approach. Verse 15 gives us a rather ambiguous statement that a fellow named Jonathan, supported by a couple of Levites named Meshulam and Shabtai, disagreed with the majority. But disagreed about what exactly? About the forced dissolutions of these unions in general? About who would decide which are legitimate marriages and which are not? About the methodology of, uh, of decisions being on a case-by-case basis and so it would take weeks for it to get done? Was it happening too slow? Was it happening too fast? We don't know any of this. Nonetheless, the next verse tells us that the former Jewish exiles agreed to the plan and set about carrying it out so the opposition of these three men obviously failed. And the first cases to be reviewed happened ten days later on the first day of the tenth month. It took until the first day of the first month, in other words three months, to finish all these cases. So they worked on these cases beginning in winter and only finished in the spring a few days before Passover. What follows to the end of the chapter and the book are the results of all this. Here's the thing to notice. Those on the list of the guilty that are at the end of this book of chapter 10, of Ezra chapter 10, are of returned exiles. It definitely seems as though this entire exercise has not been aimed at the Jewish families who had been left behind after the bulk of the Jews had been carted off to Babylon more than a century earlier. Rather, this was almost exclusively about those who had been exiled to Babylon, had returned, beginning with Zerubbabel, and now ending with Ezra's group. But we know historically that all the time between those two returns that are spoken about in the book of Ezra, separated by about 80 years, small independent groups of Jews continued returning back to Judah in dribbles as well. Thus we have kind of a mixed bag 
of Jews who returned from Babylon and Persia with wives that they had married during their exile. Others came back to the land from exile and either divorced their Jewish wives once they returned uh, or they came back unattached, perhaps as children, then married a foreign woman while they were living in Judah. Why those left behind didn't seem to be as important in this process, I don't know. But no doubt some of them were affected as well. But what we do know for certain from the listing of names is that even the high priest family married foreign pagan women. Imagine that. Then a number of common priest families are called out as guilty. After that, Levites, singers, gatekeepers. And compared to the list of names given us in Ezra about the priests and the Levites who returned, it seems that the mixed marriage debacle involved the majority of them. So what we see is that the highest level of the Jewish religious hierarchy was as guilty of this crime against God as were the lay people. No wonder Ezra was so dumbfounded and shaken. And to his credit, the leadership wasn't given a pass while only the lay people suffered the consequences. That's the more usual scenario in both political and religious purges. It is self-evident that all these religious leaders who had lived in exile for so many years had eventually turned away from the Torah as their holy manual for godly living and instead they fashioned their own doctrines and traditions that permitted much of what the Lord expressly prohibited. You know, it doesn't take very long, especially when the leadership declares themselves as the authority to decide what is right and what is wrong. To fully pervert a religion or a way of life. And once that happens, whatever the new way is, it becomes the accepted norm and orthodoxy that's to be followed without question. To challenge the orthodoxy or to explain to the followers and to the leadership that what they're doing is wrong it's against God's laws and commandments. Is of course met with sneers and incredulous retorts that if, hey, if everybody agrees upon it and everybody's doing it, how can it be that you're right and we're all wrong? My goodness, if the entire priesthood, including the incomparable high priest, marries pagan women and pronounces it as good and right in God's eyes, how can it be otherwise? This explains why Ezra, the pious Torah scholar, was by God's providence able to become closely associated with the king of Persia and his royal court whereby he gained their confidence and their support and then was awarded highest authority over all the Jewish people in the beyond the river province that included Judah. And this authority extended from the high priest to the lowliest Jewish bondservant 
Because if Ezra didn't have such unquestioned dictatorial authority, there is no way he could have enforced any reform of the Hebrew religion whatsoever. He would have been laughed out of town. He would have been considered a troublemaker. He would have been considered a heretic by every level of Jewish society. Sound familiar? Not much changes over the ages. Here we stand in 2014, a small but energized movement of reform-minded believers consisting of Gentiles and Jews, almost all of us who have come from many years in either synagogues or churches, but at some point realizing that something has gone substantially off track with our faith institutions. So why doesn't everybody else see it? Foundational premises that we heard from the Bema or from the pulpit, sometimes for decades, simply didn't and doesn't match with God's written word. And when we finally noticed it and we thought about it and we fretted about it and we prayed about it, and eventually became bothered enough to point it out to friends and even to the pastor or the rabbi, we were told we weren't qualified to know such things or to properly interpret the Bible or that it doesn't matter what the Bible says because this church or synagogue has its own set of faith doctrines and traditions that it was founded upon and by gosh it's dedicated to them. We could take Ezra's story, bring it straight into our contemporary Judeo-Christian religious setting as is, not have to modify a thing. The ultimate question that the book of Ezra asks us all to decide is this. Which do we desire more? The praise of men or the approval of God? It's that simple. A comfortable man-made faith that has an aura of godliness or a far less easy Bible-based faith that has been given to us by the Lord. I believe that most who are listening to my voice have already made that decision and that's why you're listening in the first place. Our struggle is neither new nor unique. We find it all throughout the Old and New Testaments. So as we close out this book of Ezra, the inescapable question that I believe that the Lord confronts us now, all of us with, is this. Will we have the faith, the perseverance, the courage, the devotion to God's truth? is the only true religion. Will we stick with it no matter the personal cost, how weary we might get, as did Ezra and other zealous followers of God in all eras? As Solomon so wisely decided late in his reign, 
as written in Ecclesiastes 1, 4 through 9. Generations come, generations go. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, then it speeds to its place and it rises there. The wind blows south and it turns north. The wind blows all around and it keeps returning to its rounds. All the rivers flow to the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they keep on flowing. Everything is wearisome. More than one can express. The eye isn't satisfied with seeing. The ear not filled up with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun.